All right. Good morning. morning. So I struggle with anxiety, which is kind of a weird thing for somebody who worked for so many years speaking in public, but I do. And so when I was asked this morning, how are you doing? I just tell the truth. I'm anxious. Uh, I'm a therapist and I'm in therapy. And so I've learned a lot about telling the truth, especially about our feelings. And the other thing I was sort of anticipating along with feeling anxious was just the excitement of being here because Strong Tower has become a really safe place for me and for my family. And so I know if I hold the microphone upside down, it's all right. You got my back. Just so you know, Jonathan did that on purpose for me because I told him I was anxious, so I think that was for me. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Uh, And when Pastor Chris asked me several weeks ago if I would be willing to preach, I realized this is the first uh, Sunday for me that I've preached since I left pastoral ministry formally, and just really grateful to God for redemption, that God takes the pain of our stories and he flips it on its head. Uh, I often refer to this in my past ministry as the activity of an upside-down kingdom, and that's what he does. He's always taking things that we would least expect and creating beauty right out of ashes. And so I love the opportunity to be with my family today in a safe space and talk about God's word, and I'm angry this morning. And that's what I want to talk about. I was so grateful for the opening liturgy and the theme of tension, it's, it's in my message, it's in my notes. And so I love how the Spirit of God sets things up. But we are going to really uh, live this morning for, I don't know, how long do I get? 50 minutes? That's, that, that's a little liberal, perhaps. For however long I get, we're going to live in a space of tension together this morning by talking about the feeling of anger. And I think anger often gets a really bad rap. It certainly did in the family context in in which I grew up. I grew up in a very dysfunctional family system. And anger was something that I was not allowed to experience. And so before I kind of jump into the message, I want to read a portion from a book that helps me understand emotions. It's the framework that I often use in counseling. It's a book by a guy named Chip Dodd called The Voice of the Heart. And, And I want you to listen to the way that he talks about anger and his experience. I really identify with that. He says this, he says, I grew up believing that anger was a destructive force to avoid, that if I ever felt anger, I had somehow fallen short. Either I had not been patient enough, or I would let others see they had gotten to me. I thought that I was experiencing a failure of character. Anger was something to withhold, hide, or use to keep others away from my vulnerability. This impaired belief taught me how to deny my heart's true construction, and allowed me to live a life of counterfeit fulfillment. In truth, anger is possibly the most important feeling we experience as emotional and spiritual beings because it is the first step to authentic living. It shows our yearning and hunger for life. Anger helps us pursue full life by exposing the substance, desires, and commitments of our hearts. Anger works to enhance relationships by building bridges of intimacy with others. You know who you're in relationship with, their desires, their transparency, and authenticity. Angry people can be known because of their unwillingness to hide. Authentic anger is a caring feeling. Anger, this is me talking now, not the quote, 
Anger is what we heard in the parable of the lost sheep, right? It was anger that drove the shepherd to go find the one. It was anger that drove Abraham away from his home and family and culture and even religion to follow the voice of God. Anger is what empowers us to maintain the tension between living in a broken and fallen world and embracing the hope of an eternity that is already but not yet. Back to the quote. I love this church because you talk back. It really helps me. When I was in my former pastorates, I would always say, I think I was born in the wrong tradition, but this is the right one right here. And I'm angry for it. I'm angry for you to talk. Authentic anger is a caring feeling, telling us that something matters. In fact, the energy of compassion is rooted in anger, the desire to make the pain we feel and see come to an end. Anger exposes what we value and expresses our willingness to do what is required to reach that value. It allows us to stay with our values, take sides and even die for what we believe in. Jesus, who turned the tables over in the temple and drove out thieves from a sacred place, experienced true anger. And it's that text from Mark's gospel that I want us to look at together this morning. So let me give you kind of my summary, mostly stolen from Dodd, of what anger is. So when I'm talking about anger, it's really important. This is what I mean by it, right? Sometimes uh, we talk or we tell our stories, we talk about anger as a negative thing. It's not bad. I'm just defining it in a particular way, right? Anger has multiple meanings. You look at the Bible, there are parts of the Bible that say, don't be angry. And then there are other parts that say, be angry, but don't sin, right? Just like fear. There are parts of the Bible that say, you know, fear not for I am with you, right? Perfect love casts out fear. But what's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord, right? So there are healthy versions of these things and there are impaired versions of these things and it's the healthy version of anger that I'm looking at this morning. So anger is the feeling that moves us to act. It invites us to care for self and others. That's compassion. And advocate for self and others, that's justice. So when anger is healthy, it pursues both compassion and justice. It creates identity through our passions and boundaries, right? Our yeses and our noes matter, and it's anger that empowers us to establish those boundaries. It allows us to remain present in the desires we were created for. It speaks to our desire to risk and accept pain in order to achieve. It's not lost on me that we are in a holiday weekend anticipating tomorrow where we celebrate Independence Day. And I was just thinking about uh, when Pastor Chris asked me to preach, I wasn't aware of what the date was yet before I said yes and told him kind of what I was thinking about preaching. But I'm up here on the weekend of Independence Day. And I think anger is very appropriate to the holiday. I was reading earlier this week a speech by Frederick Douglass, a speech that he gave during this same season on July 5th in 1852. He gave this address in Rochester, New York. He had been living there for several years at this point, and he was producing, publishing a, a weekly abolitionist newspaper. 
And there was a group, the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society, that asked him, invited him to give an address at a Rochester meeting. And if you know the story of Douglas, he knew firsthand the evils of American slavery, and he was working tirelessly since his own liberation to seek its end. And the speech is long. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole speech. Uh, But it's one of the angriest speeches, again, using my definition, it's one of the angriest and most powerful and beautiful speeches I've ever read. And it's a speech that lives in the tension. In the second part of his speech, after the first, where he talks about all the glories and wonders of a nation built on the concept of liberty and forefathers who pursued that, he then switches to introduce the tension, which is quite complicated. In the second part of his speech, he seeks to answer this begging question regarding why he was invited to speak and what he and his people have to do with their celebration. And so I want to pick up with a portion of his answer. Douglas says, I am not included within the pale of glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were in human mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? If so, there is a parallel to your conduct. And he draws on the image of the Tower of Babel here. And let me warn you that it is dangerous to copy the example of a nation whose crimes towering up to heaven were thrown down by the breath of the Almighty, burying that nation in irrevocable ruin. I can today take up the plaintive lament of appealed and woe-smitten people. Anger rooted in compassion Injustice, anger living in the middle of an already not yet world anger, right? That is carrying the tension. And again, by anger here, I mean that it's full of compassion, injustice. It's a call to action. And the reason I bring this up at all is because I want us to feel this morning the liberty, right? To hold the tension of the freedom that we celebrate this weekend and tomorrow with barbecues, at least at my house, and fireworks, and at the same time be able to grieve with a country struggling under the weight of political polarization and its unconfessed original sin. I also want us to see that if we find our anger here, we are in really good company as we're engaging both our joy and our grief this holiday season, I hope that you will allow yourself the space to answer this question. 
What is it that you're angry for? What are you angry for? My therapist asks me this question all the time because I struggle with anger. When you got a lot of toxic shame, it tends to really drown out anger, healthy anger. And he used to kind of uh, talk about anger in this way. He was like, I'm not asking you what you're against, right? But what are you angry for? Where do you want to see compassion and justice in your relationships, in your spheres of influence, in your world? Where do you want to act? Where are you called to move? So this morning we're looking at a very angry passage. It's in Mark chapter 11 where we see the anger of our Savior. And before we get there, because uh, I'm just, you know, a person who likes to study stuff, we got to have a lots of context. We got to set up this scene that we're kind of pulling out with just a few verses of, and we sort of got to spin around it until we can get to the center. So I'm going to draw up the context here. Uh, but in this scene that we're looking at, beginning in verse 15 in Mark chapter 11, we see the anger of Jesus. But chapter 11 begins kind of the third section of Mark's gospel. We commonly refer to as the passion narrative. And passion is just an old word that's used to, to describe the, the scenes of suffering that Jesus was embarking on and engaging in as he was moving toward the cross. Right, And so a whole third of Mark's gospel is passion. Mark cares about us identifying with the one who came to suffer and die for us, who came to serve, not to be served, who came with anger. Right? It's anger when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's struggling with his own anxiety and says, if there's any other way, let this cup, this wrath pass from me. But it's his anger that comes to, 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 to empower him as he turns and says, but not my will, yours be done. And so chapter 11 begins the passion narrative of Mark's gospel that's gonna culminate and the death, and finally the resurrection of Jesus. And this portion in Mark's gospel, beginning in chapter 11, begins to really settle in on the conflict that Jesus is having with the establishment. And so the first 11 verses are a little bit like the calm before the storm. You remember when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple. In Mark's telling of this story, there's a huge anticlimax here. He gets to the temple, and you would expect that when Messiah shows up to the center of identity and worship in the Jewish culture and faith, that there would be this grand reception. But in Mark's gospel, he shows up and you can hear the crickets. He looks around and he leaves. And though there's no grand reception when he enters the temple and his person and his mission are veiled and misunderstood, he's not deterred because he is angry. In the next three scenes in chapter 11, Jesus cursing the fig tree, Jesus cleansing the temple, and Jesus' lesson from the fig tree function in Mark's gospel as a kind of sandwich narrative. And if you read Mark much, you know he likes to use this literary device called sandwiching. When I think of a sandwich, I know this wasn't in the mind of Mark, but I think of a burger, right? medium rare, hope that doesn't offend anyone, about this thick, or if I can get some smash burgers, I'll, I'll set aside the medium rare. 
but a really good burger with lots of cheese, uh, with a bun, sesame seed, toasted and buttered on the inside, perhaps on the grill, right? Really good sandwich. And the way that sandwiching works in Mark's gospel is that each part of the sandwich helps to interpret the others. And I, and I, and I like keto stuff. I try to, to maintain my weight with keto. But any of us who have been on keto know that you can't really have a burger with lettuce, right? You have to have the bun, right? For the burger to be real, it requires carbohydrates, right? You can't really interpret the value and quality and beauty of the protein without the carbohydrates, right? And if all you have is the bread, why waste your time, right? So each part is interpreting the other. And Mike, or Mark uses this device elsewhere in his gospel, and he's using it here. And so the sandwich in Mark chapter 11, Jesus opens with cursing the fig tree. That's the top bun. And then the cleansing of the temple is the burger with cheese, right? Smoked cheddar, or Gouda. And then the bottom bun is Jesus' lesson about the fig tree. And what we're focusing on this morning is the meat, right? We don't have time to talk about all three scenes. We're going to focus in on the meat, but we're also allowing the other parts, the bun, to help us understand what's happening here. So as we, we approach this portion of Mark chapter 11, Jesus' cleansing of the temple, and we understand all the parts working together, taking together these scenes teach us that even though things can look good from a distance, like the fig tree or the temple, right? Even though they can look good from a distance, they're not always as they seem. Even when institutions make promises and constitutions, when we get up close, it's not always as it seems. And in Jesus' context, what he wants to teach us and what Mark is telling us is that religiosity is fruitless, okay? And so the people, right, the people who God was in covenant with, they couldn't look to the holy city, they couldn't look to the temple, and they especially couldn't look to their politicians and leaders, and so at the, in the bottom bun, Jesus gives this instruction, and it is this, have faith in God. That's the hope. But not without the reality of the tension of living in a broken and fallen world, but have hope in God. It wasn't the fragile and failing institutions of their world that brought about change. It was Jesus who was and is the change they and we desperately need. And it was his anger, right, that empowers his mission. As Luke's gospel tells us in chapter 7, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, right, in, in a service of his day, and he identifies his mission. And it is an angry mission to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the captive free, to recover sight to the blind, liberate the oppressed, and pour the grace of God upon the heads of the undeserving. It is an angry mission full of compassion, Injustice. And so the picture, again, that I hope we're going to see together from the scene of Jesus cleansing of the temple is an image of an angry Jesus. And as you encounter this angle, anger, I hope you'll ask the question, what is it I'm angry for? So in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, 
And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So the temple, right, this is the centerpiece of worship and communication and community for Israel. It was considered to be the place of God's dwelling, even though Solomon, Solomon back in 1 Kings said that God can't be contained in a building. They still considered it the place of God's presence and dwelling. The, the temple was a place of communication where God could communicate to his peoples, where the priesthood could, could instruct the nation, where sacrifices could be made. The temple was the center of community. It was a place of regular political and economic and legal dealings. The temple of Jesus Jesus' day, right, was dip, different than the temples of the Old Testament. This is actually the third iteration of the temple. And the first two had uh, been destroyed earlier. And construction on this temple begins about 19 BC, maybe 20 BC. And it, the construction was still underway when Jesus was uh, around and engaging in his public ministry. When he shows up in the temple, it's still an ongoing construction project. And though there was only separation between the priesthood and the people in the previous two temples in the Old Testament, right? Herod's temple, this temple that Jesus is in, further separated people according to gender and ethnicity. There was a court for women on a lower level outside the court of Israel, and the court of Israel was only for circumcised Jewish men. And the outer most court. The court where we find Jesus in the scene is a court for non-Jews. It's the court of the Gentiles. It was this massive 35-acre open area with these gigantic columns. There's a, a, a historian writing during the time of Jesus. His name is Josephus. And he describes these columns as so large that it would take three people holding hands to wrap around it. This was a magnificent building and structure and a huge court where this scene opens. And in this court, there's all kinds of commerce happening. The court of the Gentiles at this time had become a kind of stock market for animals that were being purchased for sacrifices and for money that was being exchanged for pilgrims traveling from other regions. And in verses 15 through 16, you see Jesus is angry for all people to have access to temple worship. Now, when I was growing up, I, I mean, I heard this story a thousand times. And the moral of the story, at least in my traditions, was don't sell books or, you know, paraphernalia in your church, right? Right? It's about money. So, so, so be careful to use your money wisely. But I think it misses the whole point of what Jesus was doing here. And it certainly misses the rich purpose of the anger in his mission. So Mark's telling of this story includes this little phrase that you don't see elsewhere. When Jesus reacts by clearing out the temple and he says, my house 
identifying himself here as Messiah, as God. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And then there's this tag-on phrase, for all nations. It's like the fig tree. The temple kind of looks good from a distance. It's grand. It's beautiful. But once you get up close, you see that it's not fruitful. It's not functioning as a house of worship and a beacon to the nations that it was originally intended to do. And in verse 17, Jesus is quoting from the prophets. The prophets are angry people, right? They're constantly bringing up these these dual realities and needs of compassion and justice. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56, 7, where the prophet acknowledges that God's salvation expands beyond his people Israel. It moves beyond the borders of ethnicity and the identity of Israel to include the foreigners in that passage and the eunuchs and the exiles and the Gentiles. It is a house for all nations. These I will bring to my holy mountain, he says in Isaiah, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then Jesus also pulls from Jeremiah's cry against extortion in Jeremiah 7:11. Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So if you understand the sort of cultural context in which Jesus is operating, it was the religious establishment that benefits from extorting the people. In this case, the the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, this religious establishment is benefiting from all the commerce that's taking place, but that commerce from which they benefit right, is keeping people from accessing worship of the one true God. It's unjust. So Jesus shows up angry. John's version, he fashions a whip. (laughs) I mean, what would this have looked like? Now, it's such a big area. Most likely, he didn't clear the whole thing out. Um, I think that would have been too much. Uh, But at least in the area he's in, he is moving people. He is moving. I assume the whip was for livestock. I don't know. But he's moving people. Right? He's clearing away and he's communicating through his anger the message that God intends that access to him right, shouldn't be limited because of where you come from or how much you have or who you are, what your story is, your gender, your identity, or anything else. But salvation, right? <laughs> It's by grace alone through faith alone and the personal work of Christ alone who offers it to anyone everywhere at all times. That's the good news of the gospel and that's what Jesus is angry for. I have a warning and maybe an encouragement here and it comes at the very end of the scene. If you notice kind of what's happening here, Jesus clears the temple and then he kind of... Escapes. He's, he's an escape artist, right? Because there's a lot of situations where it's not quite his time yet to go to the cross. And so he will sometimes disappear from activities that you'd think he'd get thrown in jail for. Um, but somehow 
uh, he, he, he escapes. But then the, the, the scene turns to verse 18 where we get this, this comment about the establishment here. And the chief priests and the scribes heard what had happened. And they're seeking a way to destroy him. And here's the warning, right? They're seeking a way to destroy him. Why? Because they fear. They feared him. See, when we're operating in a world that so desperately needs compassion and justice, where where anger becomes a necessity for us to live as we are called to live and be, Right? When we begin to act, it causes trouble. That's the warning. <laughs> People get afraid. And when fear goes bad, when fear gets impaired, it tends to move in one of two directions. It tends to move towards uh, flight or fight. Right? If you like neurobiology, you, you step out of your thinking part of your brain into the limbic system and you get ready to survive. But when we don't need to survive and fear shows up and, say, polarizes a nation, politically or otherwise, right, we get locked into this fight-flight, right? We start doing very painful and damaging things to the people around us. And this is what's happening to Jesus. He shows up with his anger, and the fear of the establishment seeks to hunt him down and destroy him. So if you answer this question, what are you angry for? I just want to warn you, right? And many of you know this better than I do. There is a cost to this way of being. There is a cost to telling the truth. There is a cost to living the truth. We will lose things. We will get hurt. But the mission is worth it. The hope is secure. And the calling is ours nonetheless. We can also be encouraged We can be encouraged because when you act on behalf of compassion, right, and you act on behalf of justice, when you refuse to no longer suppress the truth but to expose it, when you bring light into darkness, the one who is full of grace and truth, right, who demonstrated perfectly justice and compassion, the one who is the light of the world and has overcome the darkness is with you and he is for you and he will never forsake you. His very spirit indwells you and empowers you. The spirit of God has your back. What are you angry for? The way I frame this, right, this message, we're talking about some big things, but the reality is most of us don't have platforms to come up and speak at, right? We don't have power that gives us grand audiences, but all of us have spheres of influence, relationships, people that we interact with, that we have the opportunity to care well for and to advocate for. We have children and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, parents, cousins, aunts, uncles, co-workers, friends, schoolmates, classmates. We have all kinds of relationships where at any moment the Spirit of God can prompt us to be angry. And when he does, he becomes the instrument, right, that is intended to bring about 
the compassion and justice of Jesus in the life or lives of another? Where is he calling you to be angry? What are you angry for? Who needs your anger? I'll close with this. So this uh, past weekend, I was in Florida. Um, I think Pastor Jerry's in Florida this weekend, if I'm correct. I should have warned him about this. Um, we were on the beach as a family and spending time enjoying the ocean. Uh, we got this really nice beach. It just had a lot of old people, which is those are the best beaches. They're really clean. And uh, <laughs> we're on the beach, hanging out going in the ocean, and there's this thing they tell you to do this time of year in Florida. I'm not a Floridian, so I'm not uh, super, uh, I'm not an expert, but now I'm experienced. They tell you to do this thing um, called the stingray shuffle, and that basically means you kind of have to walk, you know, along the sand like this because you want to, you know, spook any of the stingrays that might be around, um, and there must have been this moment where I chose not to do the shuffle. Uh, because I stepped on this thing and got stabbed in the ankle, and it is the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. Um, it's itching now because it's healing with antibiotics and a tetanus shot. I get stabbed by the stingray, right? I wasn't angry, let me just tell you. <laughs> I was scared to death because I didn't know if I might die, you know, the crocodile hunter. I, everything's running through your mind at that point. Um, <laughs> And so, like, I'm coming out of the water. As I pull my ankle out of the water, blood is squirting out of my ankle. Sorry uh, if you're very visual. That's gross. But it, it was really painful. I fall onto the beach. My daughters are running towards me. I'm screaming every profanity known to man. Um, God forgive me. But, man, let me tell you, it was serious pain. <laughs> So I'm there on the beach, I'm holding, you know, my ankle, pull my hand away, blood squirts, hold it again, call the paramedics, they arrive, and basically their, their news is, there's nothing you can do about it except wait, get your bucket, this is good news, in case you're in Florida, you need to know this, get a bucket of as hot a water as you can stand, put some soap in it and dip your leg in it, that actually pulls the venom out and helps with the pain, it's true. Um, but here's the part where my anger showed up. So after about four hours, and I could think about something other than my pain with my foot in a bucket, we're all sitting around in our Airbnb as a family, and we have this conversation, because we just experienced a trauma. <laughs> Not just me, but my kids. It's hard when you're a kid to see your dad in pain he can't control, right? And I was like, we got to have a conversation about this. And this is where anger shows up. It doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to have, to have to have a national platform. It can, it can be in a, in a vacation Airbnb. But here's where anger showed up. We had to have a conversation about what really happened and what we were experiencing and how we were feeling and how we were all really scared of the ocean now and never wanted to go back. <laughs> Not kidding. <laughs> but at the end of that conversation, we made a pact as a family. The next day, we're going to the beach. And so we show up, my ankle's like this big, you know, like walking like this. We get the lawn chair out. I'm sitting back in my lawn chair and I'm thinking the whole time, dang, I got to get in the water. <laughs> my kids are in the water and I'm like, all right, I get up, kind of limp over and I put my foot in the ocean. Put the other foot in the ocean. I, I'm not going to lie, I only got to this deep right here. But we went in the water, Right? And my girls went in the water, and one of my girls even went so far as to get a floating device and go deeper into the water. 
And I'm not gonna lie, I was scared the entire time. But what mattered to me in that moment was that we didn't let our fear override the truth. That really we were safe. It was kind of a one in a million chance. It's funny when the paramedic told me that. He was like, there's so many people out here, even though you're my second stingray call of the day, it's kind of a one in a million chance. <laughs> I was like, thanks. <laughs> but I found some humor in that moment. I said, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> you only know that if you're from the 90s. <laughs> it was a dumb and dumber. Okay. Yeah, it was highly unlikely it would happen again. But this is the way fear works, right? Particularly traumatic anxiety, right? Is that it causes us to freeze or to run, to no longer move and act, right? Even when we have good reasons, those of us who grew up in abuse, neglect, and harm, or experiencing it, right? That trauma tells us, stay away. You're not safe. Quit. Don't bother. Nothing's going to change anyways. When we find our anger, when we follow Jesus, we move, we act. And even when we get stung, and we will get stung, right, put the foot back in the water. Not just for us, because there are people around us who need us to be the anger of Jesus for them. What are you angry for this morning? Where is the Spirit of God calling you to act for yourself and for others? Will you pray with me? Father, we so desperately need your help in this dark, broken, and desperate world. There's so much happening around us, not just within our nation, but even more broadly. And then when we think about our own situations, our work and our families and our relationships, we see brokenness there. And it's easy for us to get overwhelmed. It's easy for us to react with a kind of anxiety that causes us to freeze, to give up, to throw in the towel. So, Father, I ask that as we move into this week, that your spirit would bring to mind opportunities that we have to be angry and anger for compassion and justice, to be encountered in our own experiences and in the experiences and relationships with those around us. Will you help us to not just speak the truth, but to be the truth? May we bring the good news that Jesus was angry to death for us. Would you bring that good news not just in the way that we talk, but in how we live in love. Help us to choose love. We need your Spirit's help, your Spirit's wisdom, guidance, and power. Because <laughs> I know I can't do this thing on my own. But Jesus, you're with me. You'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. And I hold on to that hope in this present tension. We ask these things in the name of our risen Savior. Amen.